Have you had a busy week in the market? Not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud9Fin, our suite of podcasts where we bring you the need-to-know information on deals, documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into the themes showing up in the high-yield, leveraged loans, and restructuring spaces. We also have our US podcast, which features discussions with members of the North American Leadfin market with US editor Will Cager-Smith. So be sure to check in every second Thursday for that. I'm Catherine Hidalgo, a loans reporter at Ninefin, and I'll be your host for today when we'll be looking at the effects of the Russian and Ukraine conflict on yet more names, the ESG red flags in Russia prior to the invasion, and on Texas' change of control provision. We at Ninefin want to say our thoughts are with those in Ukraine. We send you our very best and we hope you're managing to stay safe. We've previously spoken about the conflict on this podcast and we appreciate that discussion of financial markets in the light of these tragic events in Ukraine may seem detached. But this geopolitical event continues to impact the HY market, particularly in Europe, so we're going to do our best to evaluate them. Indeed, as the Levfin rap shows, the primary pipeline is still on pause in Europe due to the macro uncertainties. We continue to monitor situations and are following up on earnings for those names such as Yobeza and Hilde Anders this week, but sources suspect we may not receive anything in the primary pipeline for yet some more weeks. Our eyes have turned to hung deals and a struggling M&A pipeline, but more to come on that later. Next up, we have the Covenant close-up today with Caitlin Karen and Brian Deering. So we've got our lovely Head of Covenant Research with us today, Caitlin Carey. Thanks for being with us today, Caitlin. Thank you for having us, Kat. And for his debut, we've got Brian Deering, Senior Covenant Analyst. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, Brian. Thanks for having me on, So the exciting thing about having two Covenant experts on here is that you guys are going to be able to talk in a lot more detail. So why don't I let you guys get off and away? Today we're going to be talking about on-text change of control. Yeah, I'm actually going to hand it straight over um, to to Brian to sort of like go through, because I I guess, you know, this key point just starting us off is what is a change of control actually and and how how does it work in a high-yield bond? Yeah, it's a great question. And specifically how uh, might at least not what investors think it is on a plain reading. So most most bonds um, and loans as well define a change of control basically as when a person gains more than 50% beneficial ownership of a company. Or if it's a public entity, sometimes it's 20 or 40%. Or is there a sale of all or substantially all of the assets? Those are the typical two prongs of change of control. Then there's an exclusion, which is if you're a permitted holder, um, and you're the person who's taking control, then it wouldn't be a change of control. But there's also another nuance, which is what is it not? And it's not when a current owner, for example, sells down their stake and someone else doesn't take control, but they sell down their stake and they long, no longer have control. Although this is still in a minority of bonds and used to be um, typical in loans. Yeah, and I guess the key thing that investors are concerned about when they think about, you know, what is a change of control and how does the definition work um, is about the change of control put right that operates in bonds. So, you know, essentially, you know, bondholders typically get a 101 put right um, in the event of a change of control, which gets the a bondholders an opportunity to have an out if the issuer is acquired by a new owner. So, you know, potentially there's a change in the strategic direction, um, changes all of the assumptions that they had made when they invested in the credit. Um, so, you know, when there's a change of control, they should get to rethink their investment. Um, in practice, I think this is, you know, whether they, you know, accept the 
whether they decide to take up the put right in an event of a change of control is likely to be driven by what the bonds are trading at. You know, if the bonds are trading above the the price that they would get, the 101, then they're not really likely to um, accept it. In one of the other podcasts that I'd done with you, Kat, we had talked about um, portability um, being an exception to this change of control and giving sponsors and issuers leeway to structure an acquisition um, in order to avoid having to give bondholders a put right. Um, but today we're going to talk about the fact that actually the way the change of control is drafted and the permitted holder definition is drafted may actually offer other ways for uh, issuers and sponsors to structure transactions to avoid a change of control sort of in disguise. So it's, it's sort of like disguised portability. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and last week, um, it, uh, following a Bloomberg article where uh, it was reported that Ontex um, was potentially going to be taken private by one of its shareholders, GBL, um, that sort of kicked off a lot of um, discussion around it, and it became a little bit contentious, I think, um, on how they might do that without triggering a change of control. And so the the analysis sort of goes that you know, given it's it's a public company actually, but in this case they only have they have a fifty percent um, definition for change of control. But um, you know, if a twenty percent shareholder takes over the business, um, it is a bit of a change for the company, um, and they'd be able to exert presumably a lot more influence than they would when they were at twenty percent. Um, and so I think on the plain reading, people would think that's probably a change of control. Um, although I think we would all agree it's probably not a complete change. Of course, the 20% owner would exert some sort of influence um, over, the, over the company. And it's also important to note that they're the largest shareholder, although there is a second shareholder that has uh, approximately 50. Um, and so I, I guess this is where it gets interesting because actually the specific facts and the specific drafting in, in Ontex are, are actually critical to, to what's actually going to be a, a change of control, what's actually going to trigger that put right. So not necessarily intuitive. You know, here we say, you know, on a gut reaction, probably going to be a change of control. But, you know, if you, if, if you have to be careful how the definitions work, you know, who is a permitted holder um, is ultimately what it comes down to. Um, and in this particular covenant package, um, we came to the ultimate conclusion that the drafting is such that GBL, this 20% shareholder, could actually be a permitted holder. And so, you know, you think, how, how can this be? You know, permitted holder, you normally think like the private equity sponsor who kind of, you know, controls the, the whole shebang. Um, and in, in this deal, permitted holder is actually limited to management investors. I'm doing quote marks with my hands, management investors and their related persons. So neither of those terms specifically mentions GBL, this 20% shareholder, right? Yeah, exactly. But in this case, there's a few more facts which are really relevant to the analysis. So, for example, um, the key fact is that actually on, on the Ontex board sits someone who has a position as investment officer at GBL, this 20% shareholder. And so, in fact, that person on a personal level would be considered a management investor, which I think we would all agree is, is typical and expected. But what's interesting to remember is that permitted holders, while it includes management investors, it also includes those persons, related persons. Um, and so this is where it really gets interesting. So if you could argue that GBL is a related person to this director who sits on the on-text board, they would themselves become a permitted holder. And that would mean that any take private transaction where uh, GBL as a, as a fund is taking them private, um, they wouldn't trigger a change of control. 
Um, so obviously there are a lot of layers here. Um, but one of the key points to look at is who is a related person um, and how would you make that argument? So the docs define a related person as um, any investment fund or vehicle managed, sponsored, or advised by any permitted holder. If by virtue of his position at GDL, the 20% shareholder, this non-executive director uh, at Ontex, who also happens to work for the shareholder, is interpreted to manage or advise um, the fund at GDL, um, then that fund would, sort of in a convoluted way, um, become a permitted holder. Yeah, so it's so very convoluted. So you had to go from permitted holder to management investors to related persons, all to get to the conclusion that actually GBL might be, might be, you know, depending on the specific packs and whether the particular conditions are, are you know, satisfied, you know, does he manage, does he advise the uh, uh, GBL um, are satisfied, then, then, then yeah, we get to a position where GBL might be a permitted holder. Next up, we have Please Raise Responsibly, our ESG segment where we discuss um, all about the environment, social factors and about governance issues in the high yield market. Today with me, I have Sam Stevens, one of our ESG analysts. Hi, Sam. How are you? Hello, Ken. Nice to be here. So we're going to have a really interesting topic today. I I won't take all of your thunder, but there's a lot there to discuss about uh, Russia and some of the factors and ESG issues that perhaps we, as as a profession, um, should have had our eye on a bit more beforehand um, to these recent events. What, What do you think about that statement, Sam? Yes, indeed. I mean, the conflict in Eastern Europe has highlighted how we ESG needs to grapple with what it defines as a sustainable investment or an ESG violation. But there is an interesting patchwork of human rights violations uh, that cause investor action, divestment or heavy engagement around the world, but also some that don't. And Russia has been a concern for quite a long period before this uh, mass mass abandonment of business by the West that we see today. So, for example... Uh, you know, funds such as Australia's Future Fund and the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund have committed to divesting Russian assets. Um, there have even been calls for divestment in a couple of high yield names uh, with significant Russian ties. And these include the uh, Roman Abramovich owned Evraz, which is a steel mining and vanadium company, and also uh, Severstal, which is a steel and mining name. And Previous to this period of our of our world now, they haven't really seen mass divestment campaigns. So 2014, the US placed sanctions on, on Russia. Um, well, they placed sanctions on individuals and arms manufacturers implicated in the invasion of Crimea back in 2014. That happened. But we've seen a couple of other things uh, since that time, which are more human rights risks. And if we're talking about ESG... These would fit into the the S, the social category. And it really makes you think about at what point does the threshold get crossed where investor action or at least discernment might take place. The recent Amnesty International report for 2020 and 21 speaks to a couple of issues that we see in Russia. Uh, And this includes the banning of public assembly, detaining of peaceful protesters and journalists, persecution of Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, women's rights is also under fire with uh, a particular human human rights and women's rights activist confined to forced labour for her activities. 
a charity called the LGBT Network uncovered evidence that people were abducted and tortured uh, within Russian territory uh, within the last few years. So these are human rights risks. And if we're talking about the SDGs and these sorts of investor standards and coalitions, Russia's activity in the past few years seems to be a little bit problematic. So, for example, the SDGs, peace and justice, one of the SDGs talks about corruption and bribery and accountable and transparent institutions. These need to be supported. And of course, the inequalities uh, goal within the SDGs talks about social, economic and political inclusion. There are international sanctions. There are political tensions and very real threats and escalating any of these can be you know, very serious indeed. But however, ESG as a discipline does need to consider what thresholds are acceptable and what it means to uphold democratic values in the real world. I mean, for example, regulations might have a place here. We look at the sustainable investing EU regulations and what they require. So the, the EU defines a sustainable investment as one that either promotes an environmental factor of which they label in the regulation, or it promotes equality, social cohesion or integration and these are social factors and regardless of whether a investment supports environmental or social factors it cannot harm any of these in a significant way i think if we were investing in something in russia it would be very hard to equate that with doing business in that country this holds parallels with the 1980s divestment that we saw due to apartheid it's a defining era in the history of ESG, where companies, institutions, and even students boycotted companies that were engaged in South Africa. And this was a very pivotal moment in people power, but also the power of money to do good. And there are a couple of parallels there with, with what we see today, where companies are being pressured to remove operations or to, or to be divested from, not based on what they do as a company, but more based on their ties with a government or the fact that they operate there. Next up, we have our deep discussion. And today with me, I have Chris Haffenden, our editor, and senior reporter Owen Sanderson. Thank you both so much for being here today. So we've spoken about Russia and Ukraine on a previous pod, but today we thought we'd focus a little bit more on some of the European high-yield names that it's affected as well as some of those second-order effects that may still be impacting portfolios out there today. So the first thing that we thought about um, was the companies that were directly affected by Russia and Ukraine, so those operating in Russia um, and or Ukraine, um, or with significant markets there. So we wrote a piece on that early on, and what's the situation since then, Chris? Some of those names that we highlighted have actually been hit very, very hard. So a good example is Hilding Adlers, which has operations in Russia and also has a fair amount of sales in Russia that actually traded down almost 30 points on its loans into the 60s. Um, we've also seen names such as Oriflame, the beauty business, which is uh, being traded down significantly. Um, and then we've also seen some names such as Holland and Barrett, which have an association with Russian oligarchs, also have traded down significantly, though we were just talking about this to the pod about whether that might have been a little bit overdone, uh, given the fact that Mikhail Friedman looks like he's trying to distance himself from the, uh, the letter-worn vehicle. 
So I think that was the, the first thing was just looking at the companies which had direct impacts. Now the, that sort of expanded out further and we started to see a lot of other names sort of start to trade off um, because of more sort of second order impacts in terms of what's happened with commodity prices, energy uh, and such like. So it's become a much sort of wider impact on the market in terms of repricing in secondary as well. In Leffin, it's always about the credit, right? And you can make a real distinction between companies such as Helping Anders, to your point, uh, or perhaps Paparan or KP, that were, you know, story credits, adventurous credits before before any of this kicked off and have been hit commensurately hard, whereas a sort of market darling like Stada, even though it has a very large Russia and um, Ukraine exposure um, facilities uh, in both countries, distribution, all that sort of thing. Um, obviously, prices are holding up much better because it's just a better business. Um, so you can certainly nuance it by the sort of starting point of these these companies before the invasion. Yeah, and I think there are some companies now that are trading down because of part Russia association, but just more generally because of the, this huge rise in, in, in costs that they're seeing, either from companies which are exposed to PVC and resin prices, which are very much based on based on oil, and then just looking at how resilient those companies are in terms of being able to manage those costs and pass those price costs through. So a good example is Klopner, which has always had issues, as Owen said, it's always been a bit of a stress credit, even from issue, but it doesn't really have that resilience because it does take quite some time to pass those costs on at all. Uh, but we've also seen names like Shola, Alibair, which um, traded off a couple of days ago by over five points because it's actually got a, rust, a sort of plastics pallet business, so the input costs are going to go up massively, and it also does have some operations in Russia. And then we saw companies like Progest, which uh, announced that they would actually have to close one of their Italian plants, uh, paper plants, because of the, uh, the high energy costs. So we're now actually seeing that the massive spike in energy costs is actually causing real problems for, for producers, and they're actually now deciding it's just not economic to produce and they're actually shuttering their operations for you know, another period of time. You have to also bear in mind though that the volatility on energy prices is huge. So it could be that they will switch those back on in a month or two when they, if energy prices do stabilise. All through the back end of last year, the, the credit question in leverage finance was how far can you pass through inflation, how far can you pass through commodity prices. Um, that work has just got way more urgent. It's, it's kind of the same work that um, investors have been doing for a while, but now the, the inflation, the quality issues are, are so much larger and so much more serious. And, um, you know, possibly people that managed to get, um, get their ducks in a row uh, last year will be in a better place to, to respond in a nimble way to uh, this, this sort of developing crisis. Yeah, I think one of the things that I think is also interesting is just the massive spike in oil prices and, and also natural gas and what that impact will have on economies. So there's this now talk about stagflation has suddenly reared its head now. The fact that we could see if these energy prices are extended, that's going to have a massive effect on European growth. But we're now seeing in the last few days the unthinkable about you know com countries now saying that they will actually stop uh, taking Russian Russian oil and gas. Maybe that might be in six months or a year's time, but you know, there's also companies also withdrawing from you know, from the region as well. So you've now got, the, I think there's a good report that came out from Deutsche the back in the last week, but they said if you had like a 50% rise in oil prices and 100% rise in gas prices for a year, 
that would re re reduce European growth by two and a half to three percent. So effectively, that would push um, Europe almost into a recession. At that point, the read across is just to the entire market. Yes, yeah. there's nothing. So you've got you've, so you've got growth that's going to be subdued. You've got inflation that's going to be six percent potentially plus in the eurozone. You know that's going to have a you know a huge impact on sort of corporate margins and, and profits and just you know top line revenues. So we haven't had a leverage loan issuance since Valentine's Day, which I think you pointed out a few weeks ago now. Could you give us a little bit of CLO colour on this? How, how are those folks feeling about everything? Absolutely. Well, I'll, I'll do my best. So getting on for a month of no issuance, uh, that's not been the case in CLOs, actually. At the back end of last week, we had two new issues priced. I believe Napier Park's um, probably likely to price this week. Um, so that will obviously set up an interesting technical imbalance if the major source of demand for European leverage loans keeps going and no new loans come to market. Um, eventually, that technical should should point back tighter again. Whether that happens off the back of three deals is kind of unlikely. We don't know whether the next wave of CLO supply is going to come to market and at what levels. CLOs and loans are kind of naturally matched in that the spreads tend to move in tandem. So you, you price a wider CLO and it's buying loans at a cheaper price and the sort of spread differential should come out and wash. If anything, loans have probably traded off a bit more uh, rapidly than, than CLO liabilities. In a funny sort of way, it's a good time to be doing new issues uh, in CLO land, although you wouldn't, you wouldn't think it. Yeah, I mean, in high yield, we haven't had a, a deal, I think, for about 28 days, so we're pretty up to that sort of month figure as well. And you've actually had quite a significant widening uh, on a sort of spread basis. So we've now got, I think, about, I think crossovers now trading just around about the 400 marks, so a little bit above 400. So that's a sort of 150 wider than we saw uh, beginning of January. So if you are going to be thinking about pricing new high yield, if you do see some stability at wider levels and we don't sort of see sort of you know have a little bit of a risk on comes along you are still going to actually have to see deals come to market at probably you know higher coupons than the, the, the bonds that they're replacing and so the question is whether borrowers are going to be willing to sort of lock in those sort of higher rates because they think that rates are going to go higher or or is there the ability for them to feel that they just want to extend out their, uh, their maturity so it's not quite as an obvious trade as we were seeing um, back in last year um, I don't have the figures to hand, but I, I think Europe in particular is, is pretty good in terms of no near-term maturities. The environment for issuance was pretty good last year. Lots of um, borrowers opportunistically took advantage of that. And there are not going to be that many credits with real near-term motivated refinancings that have to get done. Um, so I think there is a high capacity for sitting on the sidelines. Uh, what we really need to worry about, of course, is underwritten new LBOs that are sitting on bank balance sheets right now and wondering where that exit is. Yeah, and I think that's that's interesting from a number of perspectives on the LBO front. So, you know, where is the demand? It looks like there's probably more demand in loans rather than bonds. So you'll probably find some of those deals will probably be more loan heavy. And also you could find that some of those actually end up uh, with dollar tranches and stateside just given the fact that that market's more open in Europe right now. 
Uh, on the opportunistic refi front, I think what's interesting though is that there was a lot of deals which were callable into 2022, that you know in October, November last year, when the sort of first call date was coming along, you know you could probably refinance up to 50 billion worth of paper. We run the same sort of numbers at the end of January, and it was down to about 25 billion. And with the latest sort of move in the market, it's probably closer to zero. So we've got um, the situation where crossovers now at 400. Bips, so that's about 150 wider than we were at the beginning of January. So that means that if anyone's actually going to bring a deal to market, it's going to actually have to come probably at a higher coupon than the, the, the debt is the shorter term debt that it's replacing. And the question then is whether companies are willing to willing to pay that price or not. Hmm. I wonder to what extent the the credit funds really start to come into their own um, this time around. Um, you know, we've already seen uh, that in the Morrison's package and this should be prime hunting ground for uh, credit fund direct lender type money that is more willing to take a view, write large tickets, um, can do that in private and de-risk some of the underwritten pipeline. Uh, that would seem to be the sort of obvious way to go if you're kind of worried about finding a window in the next however long this goes. Yeah, and I think uh, bringing it into my sort of world of sort of stress and distress, you know, that's probably where you're going to find a lot of these trades. So deals that we know have got to come up for refi, like the Matalangs or the Refinery Heater. I know there was a presentation yesterday on Refinery Heater by Credit Suisse with the contribution of the, the Danish refinery, but those bonds are still trading uh, in the low 80s, low to mid 80s. So it's clear that you know you are going to have to probably go to those sort of more opportunistic funds if you are going to get. So I think you're right. I think those will come into their own. Either it's because they'll take a chunk of the, the risky part of the deal, or that will at least sort of part provide comfort to those uh, underwriters that they can uh, at least de-risk themselves and then buy, buy themselves a little bit more time to uh, the, the rest of the deal you know, later on. I wonder about the the waivers that were signed and, and extended post COVID, because I feel like a lot of those would have been you know, let's call it 18, 24 month waivers on covenant tests. So that's, um, that's June 22. And if we have a European recession, those, those levels are not going to be met. Yeah, well, we've seen that. Um, we've seen one or two that have been extended in the last week or two from the earnings. So we saw Dufry had theirs uh, extended, uh, Omtex as well. Um, I think Gatwick and Heathrow have got, I think, waivers out to 2023. So I think some companies have actually got ahead of that, ahead of that. I would also probably start to think about maybe waivers that you had on sort of springing, springing sort of our covenants on RCFs and sort of RCF availability and whether that's something that might be a bit tougher you know, to get waivers on. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today on Cloud9fin. Many thanks to Sam, to Caitlin and Brian, to Owen and Chris, and of course, to you too, listener. Tune in for the US edition next week and the European pod the week after. And in the meantime, don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts.